0: I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had, the challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system, and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Welcome back, my loves. I have something very exciting for you today. It's kind of a a blast from the past for me. (laughs) Because of this guest and many others during my time at Boston University, I decided to leave my planned career of acting and theater and focus on yoga and somatic practices and trauma healing. It was because of what I discovered when we did these practices to get into our um, sort of natural state to take on a role, that there was so much, so deep that I could go when working with the mind-body system that I just never wanted to stop doing that. In this interview with Betsy Pollardin, we talk about why bodywork is not bodywork at all, We're going to talk about stories about becoming aware of patterns in the body and getting in control of them, having more choice in life and having freedom as a performer or non-performer and all the ways that we hold trauma and can let that trauma go. Betsy Palatin is an internationally recognized breathing and movement specialist and best-selling author. She was a master lecturer at Boston University College of Fine Arts for 25 years. Her background includes many years of movement education and performance, as well as training in the Alexander Technique. That's how I knew her as an Alexander teacher. She's doing so much more in this, so much more she was doing that I didn't even know. She has a background in music, dance, yoga, meditation, trauma resolution. Her work is greatly influenced by the teachings of spiritual and meditation masters. Betsy leads international trainings. And she has worked with some of the greats. She's worked with Peter Levine and with uh, Gabor Mate. And uh, she has her own book out now and her own model of practice. Her book is called Humanual, An Epic Journey to Your Expanded Self and the Actor's Secret. As a well-known educator, she has published numerous articles in the Huffington Post And she maintains a private practice online internationally. So you can actually do this body, non-body work with her via Zoom. And it's very, very effective. Make sure you check out her site, humanuel.com. We'll list it in the show notes. I know you are going to really benefit from this interview where Betsy explains to us that the mind-body connection, it's not even a connection at all. It's an intertwined system that we can work on. Enjoy. Let's see. I am really, really glad to reconnect with you. I don't know if you remember me because you've had many students at BU.
1: Sure. I remember you. I did have many students over many years 25 years. So there's a lot of people.
0: Now that I'm a teacher, I understand. (laughs) I don't always remember.
1: Right. But still, you know, somebody's in your field of energetic teaching that you have some connection to them. So that doesn't go away.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I really feel that and my time at BU is it's coming up a lot for me these days, getting ready to release this book, The Essential Guide to Trauma Sensitive Yoga. And you know my my journey into yoga really started at BU. I mean, there was a little bit right before I left for Boston University, and then there was so much of this breath and body work and embodiment work that we did at the program. And then I started doing yoga. And then I was just like, I got more, I just wanted to do mind, body, emotion, spirit work <laughs> and and right. healing. And I moved away from the acting and you were a big part of that. So I was like, I really want to bring you on and kind of like ask you what happened during that time. And
1: <laughs> yeah, it is interesting how, the desire for acting training can open up to other dimensions of yourself that were just waiting and wanting, you know, expression. So yeah, I understand that.
0: Yeah. I always explain that like the, a lot of the things we were learning, I feel like we were learning to kind of create this clear channel that we could be in the moment and res- like really respond without our conditioned habits. Um, that we could take on a character. But in doing that, I just learned about getting rid of conditioned habits.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The thing is, when you, as an actor, when you want to become another person, you start with yourself. And so you've got a whole collection of habitual patterns. And so if you, in taking on the character, just add. The character's patterns on top of yours, the character's patterns don't read quite so well. Mm. But if you are willing and able to go through the process of really looking at deeply your own habitual patterns, ways of being, ways of thinking, conscious and unconscious, and have some agency over them, with them, or understanding. Then when you go to take on another character, you can shift some of those to the back burner and then the character's tendencies show so much stronger. Mm. And that's what we see in good acting. Mm. Once you, like you said, once you start that process of self-discovery, really, it's a very exciting journey and maybe more exciting than taking on another character. Yes.
0: (laughs) That's definitely um, what happened for me. Yeah, I was
1: gonna say that sounds
0: like what happened to you. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I knew you as a Alexander teacher. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what I remember happening through experiencing your your class and your teachings, really, I want to ask you about this. The main exercises that I recall, I mean, pretty much there's one that I still do almost every day, which is just putting some books under my head and laying on the ground, basically.
1: Right, the lying down work, sure, yeah. And I
0: just remember, like um lengthening and ex- and expanding, and maybe this kind of star position on the ground. And then, aside from that, this kind of motto of, like, do less. See how you could, like, brush your teeth. <laughs> Can you do less? Right. That's one of the central questions, right? Right. Yes, one of my favorite questions. <laughs> And through that, through those exercises and that question, I just remember having this whole like breakdown, breakthrough that had to do with relationship with my parents. <laughs>
1: like, yeah. Uh, yeah. It goes deep. It goes deep. You know, sometimes these things that seem so simple on the surface and in a way are simple, but they lead, they can lead to very profound experiences. I mean, the thing is, one of the things I like to say is uh, one of my jobs is to help people do nothing and doing nothing is like the hardest thing in the world to do. So, you know, I mean, laying, just lying on the floor and, and not doing uh, a bunch of tasks or activities is is not easy. And because it opens us to see what's really going on for us.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, maybe you want to explain more about that, the things we do to kind of cover facing what's going on and how Alexander Technique, and I know you're using, I don't know if you were at that time, I was like, whoa, she is using a lot of techniques now and built your own model.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. I've been certified as an Alexander teacher for what, more than 40 years now, you know, maybe 45 by now. And the principles of that work are quite powerful, but I found that there was there was more that I needed to help people access something. And so the next biggest stage after Alexander work was Carl Stau's breath work. And that was really opening because working with so many people, having my hands on so many different people allowed me to see that people breathe in really different ways. And I was always wondering what, I wonder what, the right way is, or, you know, because I work with so many performers, actors, and, and I work a lot with singers and musicians who use air, and it was always a question for me, like, how how does air work efficiently? And I read a lot and looked into a lot of different breathing techniques, and for some reason, they just never, it seemed like okay, but it didn't really answer my questions. And then when I met Carl Stau, I thought, whoa, well, okay, this guy has the answers. And to this day, I think his breathing practices are the most efficient, accurate to our human body that, you know, that anybody's come up with. So
0: can you explain a little bit for our listeners who aren't familiar with him? What are some of the basic techniques and principles? Sure one of the
1: sort of outstanding ones is that in let's just use singing because it's pretty common the phrase tank up or take a breath or get a big inhale when you really look at what's going on it's not really the inhale I mean obviously the inhales important but what's really important is your exhale because if you don't Exhale completely, then the carbon dioxide can build up, the excess carbon dioxide can build up, and there's no room for the fresh oxygen. So, that's probably, I think, one of the biggest takeaways or learning points is that keep an eye more on your exhale and make sure that you exhale completely. Now, of course, the interesting thing about all that, now, I mean, that was, gosh, that was, you know, 25 years ago or more. You know, he was working in the 50s, so it's a lot more. But now, with all the excitement and interest and paying attention to the vagus nerve, it's obvious that a longer exhale, well, it's obvious, but it's, you know, scientifically sort of proven that a longer exhale stimulates the vagus nerve, and everybody wants the vagus nerve to be working properly these Mm -hmm. days. So. Carl was sort of way ahead of the game yeah. uh, before all this vagus nerve information came out. Carl had a way of accessing it that was quite profound and powerful for performers, especially. But anybody, you know, you don't have to be a performer to speak.
0: Yeah. And accessing our full breath capacity, I mean, of course, it's it, right, it leads to our communication are speaking in a more truthful way. Like the tone of our communication is going to resonate with our, our experience and what we're really intending to share, right?
1: Right. The prosody of the voice. So it's, we listen more to the rhythm and the intonation than we do to actual words. Somebody speaks sort of in a monotone, you a going be a little bit less interested than when somebody oh yeah hey I, you know right i told you yeah mm-hmm. you know you get you know you get this interest going a piece of breath that we can't not mention here is the emotional component yeah that when life is difficult emotions are hard to feel then holding your breath becomes a good way to do it you know, you can hold down your emotions by holding your breath, and a lot of people do. We, I'm going to include everybody. We do that, you know. So it's not like somebody is consciously saying, "Oh, I'm going to hold my breath," but it's it's often to not feel something that's too painful. And that led me, of course, to the trauma work that I've been <laughs> involved with for you know a good 25 years now. That the more you are willing to explore in yourself, the more you come up with, you know, begin to see that things happen that uh, necessitated, if that's a word, us to respond or behave a certain way in relationship to the environment. Yeah. That's a big piece, as you know, in your work, too, now.
0: Yeah, and the the focus of the podcast is around trauma, and so I definitely wanted to get into that. So many thoughts and questions are coming to my mind. I mean, there, I guess, what's popping up the most for me right now are there's so many examples in your book about you working with the client, and they're very tight in one area or have a lot of pain in one area, and it's remarkable. You're asking them, you know, did anything happen?
1: Right. Right.
0: And again and again, they're telling you, no, I don't remember anything.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's always, or often the the, the first response is no. I mean, the thing is, if you ask most people 30, you know, 30 years ago, people who, I don't know, without being, I hope I'm politically correct here, sort of regular people functioning in the world, if you would say to them, did you have any trauma? Most people would have said no even though there's difficulty in relationship or job or physicality or emotions or mental, you know, there's the answer would have been no. And yet these days, uh, trauma has become a whole other thing. And with what the definitions are now, most people you ask, well, you know, yeah, maybe I did have some, you know? So it's really kind of interesting, but that first, that it's often, it is often, no nothing really we just don't think of things as being traumatic or as as that we would have residue of you know 40 years later that something mattered so much but they do things matter and we get affected by it and until we recognize it it's there and kind of ruling quite a bit of our behavior
0: mm yeah do you want to speak more to that so how would you see And I love also what you said in your book that people always want to say you're a body worker. (laughs) you're like, I'm not a body worker, actually. (laughs) Um, How would you see? Actually,
1: I I was in London a couple of weeks ago and I walked by a shop and it's, you know, it's this body work and it's a place that fixes cars, you know, and it's like that to me, that's body work.
0: Yes. And you also have a great story in your book about that. Yeah. The mechanic, the surgeon.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's a funny story. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Your book is called Humanual, right? By the way. And and we're going to link it. Your method, and it's really a a combination of, like you said, what, 45, 50 years work, your life work. I don't know if I had realized, you know, that you were early on in yoga and meditation. So you're really combining a lot of modalities.
1: Yoga and meditation, I didn't really... You know, as an Alexander teacher, I never talked about the fact that I meditated every day. You know, I, I just didn't, I didn't want that to be part of my public persona.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I rem- I do remember you told us about your macrobiotic diet. Right. That you were, I remember that because it really stood out for me at that time.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's funny. I don't talk that much about that either, but maybe I did to your class.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and, and maybe it was a quick something and it just stuck with me at that time.
1: Right. Right. It was probably uh, who knows what we were talking about. And, and and then it's not something I don't talk about, you know, but it's I, it's not something I don't put myself out there as a teacher of that or anything like that, you know?
0: Yeah. But somehow all these things, and I think you do a good job in the book, it's like informing you as a, a teacher and a practitioner and and what you bring to the table. And even if it's not something you speak about, it's in you.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. And I know that, you know. So, and if somebody asks me, I'm very happy to talk about any of it at this point in my life. I don't really have things that I don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know? so.
0: oh, that's the great thing of <laughs> as we evolve in age.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> so I wonder when all oh, you just going back to what you said, how these traumas and you know it could be an early childhood trauma and it could be something that we don't even remember you know early illness a, an accident something that happened and we kind of thought that was over how right. you see those showing up you know in folks later on and, and even ruling ruling their lives and right. Right. what you're seeing and then how you're helping them to bring that out to the surface if that's what you're doing and re-pattern
1: yeah, I mean, I'll give maybe a couple of examples of the best way to explain it. Um, usually, if somebody comes to me, they come to me with a specific something. Like this one young woman came, and she said, you know, it's really strange. I like to hold my head in this very specific position, and she kind of tilted her head to the side. And she said, I like to keep my head there. And I said, Well, that's interesting. You know, your head is able to move in a lot of different ways and a lot of different positions. Any specific reason why you like to keep your head there? She said, No. You know, and again, I said, Did anything happen that pushed your head or something? No, 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 no. You know, and then a little while later, she came back and said, Oh, You know, when I was younger, I was swimming in the ocean and a big wave came and hit me. And she mimicked, you know, with her hand, the wave coming toward her and the wave hitting her. And as she did that, her head went to the position that she was telling me she holds her head in. So I said that. And then in that moment, she realized, oh, when that wave hit me, it was shocking. And I froze. I mean, she didn't say it this way. I'm saying it that way. She froze in that position of the shock of the wave hitting her. And I think she may have broke her collarbone or something too. So in that moment of realizing, because basically a part of her was still living in that moment. And so the everyday symptom, so to speak, was her holding her head in this particular way, but Having no recollection of the incident, she had no idea why she was doing that mm-hmm. yet her physicality knew the whole story, and so, with a little bit of questioning and inquiry, something will show itself
0: now. do we have to remember like do do you have to get to the root source in order to no because you
1: don't what you're asking really is do I need to have a cognizant you know cognitive memory of it because you obviously have a body memory, mm. and so that's enough. you don't need you're asking do I need a story? yeah, and no, because you know some of the stuff is pre verbal and so you just need to recognize your 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 body's you know screaming that all the time, yeah whether you have a story or not.
0: And can you explain how someone like her or maybe another story and how having this frozen pattern would be impacting all aspects of their life? Yeah, because, um,
1: well, let me sort of finish the story. So as she realized that the wave hit her and she was frozen in that position with her head to the side, her head very slowly moved back to a centered position on the top of her spine. And then a few minutes, she was just exploring that. And she said, oh, my head feels like it's bobbing around on the top of my spine. And what she was experiencing was just freedom of movement. So it would show up, what what you're asking is, it would show up anytime she went to turn her head one way or the other it would be resistant to moving which would limit driving you know or walking down the street and turning your head is is an important part of life i mean she was she could do it but it just wasn't spot on so it can show up in and i think also metaphorically like, can I look over here? Do I not look over here? Do I have a blind spot? You know, there's implications across mental, physical, and spiritual experience of life.
0: That's what I was thinking too. Like if you have this limited range of motion yeah, with your head and neck and you're actually not getting the fullest picture of your environment, yeah, how that's actually limiting your experience of the world. Right,
1: right. What you're taking in and how you define what you take in. Because yeah. if you define from that held place, that's different from seeing with so called more open eyes or fresh eyes kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm thinking also kind of back to the Alexander, which I'm I do I would love for you to explain a little bit more for folks who, who aren't familiar with Alexander technique and that idea of doing less how some other patterns and like overdoings because <laughs> I is, is also creating a different perception and life experience. Right, right.
1: Well, the Alexander technique has an idea that there's a specific design to how we function. Basically, you know, how, how your body moves I, in an ideal way is pretty specific. I mean, when you think about it, an example would be, you know, a lot of people stand with their knees locked or hyperextended knees, they call it. And when you think about what's really going on, you're actually trying to bend your knees backwards. You know, they're sort of pushing back and your knees don't bend backwards. Mm -hmm. So doing that for a prolonged period of time is not going to go well one way or another. Knees are are made to bend forward, you know, in a specific way. And if you follow that, your movement can be easier and lighter and freer. And if you don't, then you're going to run into some kind of difficulty, most likely. So the Alexander technique has it pretty well mapped out how, how we function. And that's really valuable for everybody. I mean, the thing is, when you look at healthy children, they move with a kind of lightness and grace and ease that we admire. And that mechanism is still inside of us, but then we bump into the trauma, you know, we had to behave this way, listen to this, do what was said over here, got bumped around by our environment, or not seen, not listened to, told we're not worthy in one way or another, or not clever enough, or not pretty enough, or not smart enough. You know, all of those things come in and affect our
0: physicality,
1: and of course our emotions. You know, and our mental state, of course.
0: And I'm wondering, is that as as folks start to work with some of these exercises and concepts, I'm wondering what cause I know breath work can be very triggering and bring up a lot if, especially if there was really, um, you know, we're, we're using traumas like there's we can all say we've had some trauma in our life, but of course there's different sort of levels of that. Um, right. Yeah. And yeah. So I'm wondering when you're working with someone who's a survivor, something more, maybe a little more extreme or more present, more current, how you're working with them and what's you know what kind of shifts you're able to see and yeah, anything you can share about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the important piece here is titrating the work, doing small pieces and so that people don't get too overwhelmed. Like you said, too much comes up, it's too overwhelming and you only want to help people work through what they can manage to work through and being willing to see and look at early childhood patterns is really important here because most of these patterns started as survival patterns. You know, I had to be this way because that's what the, I wanted to do this, but my environment says, you can't do that, you have to behave a certain way. So, I learned to behave a certain way to survive my environment. And now I'm still behaving that way. And another part of me is like, I don't really want to behave that way. You know, Mm -hmm. it's all sort of unconscious and already programmed. So bringing these patterns to consciousness and understanding them can be helpful. And it's also, we need a lot of compassion because these patterns, we didn't make them up. You know, we didn't say, oh, I want to always get into a bad relationship. You know, we didn't do that on purpose but that's what was programmed and so until we actually address that it's going to keep happening
0: yeah and so you know a lot of trauma survivors they have either or both hyper vigilance so kind of jumping looking around reacting um as if there's danger when maybe there's not danger present and that's going to show up in some patterns in the body or Maybe they're disassociating, so they're really they're not feeling the body, and so I'm wondering how you see this in your body work. That's not body work, and is it advisable to you know to soften that hypervigilance or to make that reconnection of the person coming back into their body where there's been that disassociation? What's that process like?
1: Well, I think the most important thing, and this is what people often miss, is that the and it's kind of like what I was saying before, the, the dissociation or, or the hypervigilance was absolutely necessary. Like, it saved you, it saved the person. You know, they, had, they say that they lived in a household where there was a parent who was mentally unstable or had addiction or alcohol or some, something. And you always had to be on the lookout of what's going to happen when I get home from school. What's it going to be like when he comes home drunk or you know, a- anything along those lines. That hypervigilance, you wouldn't give it up for the world because it was absolutely necessary. And now that program of, I won't give it up for the world. I'm going to, I need to do this to survive because if I don't, my survival could be in jeopardy and so why would i ever give that up you know so we really need to get it on that level how our survival patterns and how important they are and were and so they were important at a certain time and now they're maybe not as necessary and so you you got to sort of get it on that level, and and that's on the you know cognitive and also in 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 your physicality. Do I need to keep tensing myself? And you need to you want to work through that and feel what it feels like. And the more you, you touch the pattern, the less pull it has on you. And so that's that's the only way I i know at this point to shift these things they they just don't easily step aside for most people I mean some people have like a you know a spiritual awakening or a a, a sickness or something or big thing in their life that changes dramatically there you know or a uh what's it called a plant medicine experience you know that will change things quickly but for most people, it it's a little it takes attention uh, over time.
0: You know, a lot of people get that um, w- when we have a strong emotion, we might we feel it in our body. You know, like a a week or weeks of stress, they they might realize. Then I I always get a stomach ache, or my neck or shoulder or back. But what you talk about and ex- explain so well in the book is actually the other way that the body is actually giving you the emotion.
1: (laughs) Right, yes. Well, that again, that takes us back to the vagus nerve because the fibers of the vagus nerve are from your brain to your body are 20%, but from your body to your brain is 80%. So the vagus nerve being the 10th cranial nerve and the largest nerve in your body that's a lot of information coming from your body. So your body is telling you, this is how you feel.
0: Yeah, I think that's just so, such a powerful bit of information (laughs) because then, you know, you, like you were saying, you don't have to know or have this story. Yeah,
1: Yeah. But then
0: we can, by changing the pattern in the body, we can change how we feel.
1: Right. I mean, sometimes you're, you're upset about something and you go for a walk and you feel a little better, you know, like you're changing what's happening in your physicality.
0: Can you share maybe another example of someone you've, you've worked with and a change you've seen that relates to this?
1: You mean, which thing specifically?
0: I guess where you've, you've helped them to shift a physical pattern the habituation or something that was tight or painful that opened up, and then there was a kind of emotional shift or a personality shift. Yeah, it's
1: an, not an uncommon pattern for people to have tightness in their legs or feet, and it often can relate to wanting to move out of someplace, it's like a thwarted flight response. Mm that's another common way that again people sort of like this one woman was in school was kind of bullied a lot so obviously you know you're sitting there and you have to take it but you don't really want to be there <laughs> your legs are saying get me out of here and so there's a tightness in your legs getting ready to to move and yet the movement can't happen mm. and so that's another very Common, you know, there's different versions of it, but that's that's another common sort of physical symptom that that comes up So some kind of leg issue.
0: Yeah, that's such a great example.
1: Yeah, I actually think there's a. I think it's in Hugh Manuel. The story of the woman, she had a pain in, I think, her left leg and her left shoulder. Maybe it was her left shoulder, and had been to doctors, orthopedic surgeons everywhere. Nobody could solve what was going on. So as we were working, I worked with her left shoulder. That didn't help. I worked with her right shoulder. That didn't help. And so we're doing some table work and I went to move her right leg and her right leg almost couldn't move it. And I said, whoa, did you know? Does something ever happen to your right leg? And again, no, nothing. And a little while later, that she said something about being in the hospital as a with some kind of illness as I think a three year old and standing and looking out the window and waiting for her parents to come and just yeah, right, exactly, yeah. like so painful and difficult, and so that tightness in her legs, and so we did you know a bunch of other talk through a bunch of it and and then when she stood up, it was like. The issue was not so much in her left shoulder like she thought it was because that's where the pain was, but it was that her right leg was pulled up into her body, which pushed her over to the left side and put pressure on her left shoulder. Wow. So the place where the problem showed up is not where the real problem was. So that kind of stuff is really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, Because when we feel the pain, we feel like we have to work on that area. Exactly. And
1: often, quite frankly, where it shows up is not the real thing.
0: Not the source. Whoa. (laughs) Is it usually in that cross pattern? Because I know there's a lot of spiraling that happens in the body. You talk about it well in the book. And I know there's some connection between maybe the right hip and the left shoulder. Yeah, but it's... Could be anything.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think I've given up on really trying. I mean, it can be parallel, it can be spiral, it can be diagonal. It, it's okay. Life comes along in many different ways. So Yeah. You know, depending on I mean, just the impact could be from any direction. So
0: Are there certain things that happen to certain parts of the body, like the jaw, maybe you can share when there's like a trauma or, you know, we're not able to express or like our midsection? Uh, Yeah. But again, I think there's lots of, yeah, I mean, there's the
1: obvious that when something happened to a young person and they said, they were told, don't you dare tell anybody that there's going to be jaw neck tension from that. And so there's, but again, there's all kinds of reasons why we end up in the pattern we end up in.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So it takes a skilled professional and maybe some, it's not so obvious as jaw means you couldn't speak up.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it, you know, jaw is also associated with anger,
0: Mm.
1: but the anger is also related to not speaking up. And then that takes us into once you touch the anger, then there's kind of a question about boundary defense. Did somebody violate my boundaries, which made me angry, you know, that yeah. often goes together. So
0: do you uh, find that your work is edging on the line of or blurring into therapy? And how do you like hold that in the space? Hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, the work is, what do we call therapy? You know? Yeah. I mean, the work is not traditional therapy, but it's, it's definitely therapeutic, that's for sure. So yeah, it depends what you call it. I mean, you, if you it depends what you come in as. I mean, and I often present myself as a breathing and movement specialist now. That's kind of what I feel comfortable saying. And so if somebody isn't moving the way they want to be able to move or isn't breathing the way they want to be able to breathe. I can help you with that. And so, whatever we bump into along the way, I'm comfortable with dealing with
0: mm-hmm.
1: now, many people have had or are having some kind of talk therapy, and you know that's helpful to a point, but often these patterns are lodged in our physicality, and they need to be addressed there, and that's an important piece that's what I think,
0: yeah, so you see. That it could be quite often that someone is going through talk therapy, maybe has been for a while, and and then something in them is realizing they need some access to the body. And so it's kind of like a combination.
1: Yeah, they realize there's still something they're not getting to. Yeah. And so they want to try. And you'll also find that most people, of course, have no skill in paying attention to their body. The body was an uncomfortable place to be. And so people retreat up into their heads and live their life that way. Yeah. And so that's a whole process of even paying attention to what's happening below your neck.
0: When you're working with someone, are there a typical amount of sessions that you have together?
1: No, not really. It really varies. It varies where the person's coming from. You know, most people, by the time they get to me, have done quite a bit of work on themselves. Mm. And so I kind of dive right in and we move rather quickly.
0: Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and other people stay for long periods of time and and use it as a um, sort of checkpoint for themselves regularly to see what's happening with what's going on in their lives because there's I mean, you can or one can do this work forever. There's no end. There's there's no end to it. Yeah. There's no end to it. And that that's a good thing. It's really how much you want to do.
0: Yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking of kind of two questions. One was around, like, once you've successfully and I mean, this might not be the right words, but like repat, you know, worked with someone on repatterning. How stable is that? Or how likely is it to return to an, an old pattern? And then the other question is around like, this kind of, I think now I'd be more open to understanding like that the work is ongoing. But I think when I was in school, that felt really like almost overwhelming. <laughs> right. And like, I actually attached some, I think I was still very perfectionist. So the fact that like, there was always something else felt like I almost put another layer of like guilt or shame over that you know, I'd be like, why am I still having a pattern problem? (laughs) And then that would cause more of a problem than just like accepting that that's life.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. That there's lots of layers to us. Definitely.
0: And so, sorry. So back to that first question, like when you repattern, is it? What I often say is it's more
1: like the pattern doesn't rule you quite as much. Mm. You know, it goes a bit, It has a bit of a less pull. Like I was working with somebody a couple of days ago and she has, you know, had a difficult childhood and so is criticizing herself a lot kind of thing because that's what, she was criticized a lot. So she criticizes Mm -hmm. herself. And so she was saying she was in a conversation and she started to say something that would be along those lines of criticizing herself. And she realized, huh, I, I, no, I don't really want to say that. Mm. And so, you know, that doesn't mean in another moment she might say it, but at least there are some moments when she is not saying it and realizing, yeah, you know, that's not quite what I want to put myself out there. So, I mean, when she, when I hear those stories, it like makes my heart sing. It's like, that's, that's beautiful because that's the conscious awareness of, the pattern and my decision consciously in the moment to not let it persist. I mean, that's, that's really the freedom that we're all looking for.
0: That's it. It's really about that conscious awareness and then the choice. I can go with the, my habitual response or I can make another choice.
1: Right, right. And
0: I can choose each time if I'm aware. I think sometimes there's a feeling of losing oneself when we're losing those. Yes.
1: Yeah. There is an interference with sense of self, but often that's an adapted self that anyway, you know? Yeah. So do I want that or do I want a bit more of an authentic version or truer self, you know, that I might come up with?
0: Do you think that, or have you witnessed folks going through that process and Like, is there a feeling of loss? Is there a journey to like redefine self? Well, you might
1: feel it as loss, but like the example I gave a moment ago, the woman who didn't criticize herself in the conversation, I mean, she was pretty happy about that. (laughs) She was not mourning the loss of that constant criticism. So, but other people do.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of when we... Like there's usually a reason, right? Why? So I make myself small because there's some payoff, right? Because I, then people say, no, you are good, right? And so there's a addiction to that.
1: Yes, when you recognize that.
0: <laughs> yeah, the layers.
1: Right, right.
0: Well, Betsy, I don't want to take out too much of your time. I have um, maybe one or two more questions. I know you do specific work. This kind of like circles it back to our the beginning of our conversation, our acting. My acting days. I know you do specific trauma for performers or and working with Peter Levine, which is just amazing. <laughs>
1: yeah, the class, the class we teach, trauma uh, and the performing artist. Ah. Very exciting class. Wow. Yeah.
0: That when I found that, out, I was like, that is so cool. Um, maybe he'll come on one day. I've been doing a lot of thinking about and reading about archetypes and so and and then since you had that class and title of that class, I wondered if there's specific traumas and trauma patterns around the performing artist. I know there's that kind of archetype of the starving artist and a lot of artists feeling that they have to suffer in order to produce great art.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, I think there's I don't know that that I have it categorized specifically. I mean, I work with a lot of musicians. And I work with a lot of actors and they're different. They're just different archetypes or personality types that are drawn to different performing arts. So I could say that, but as far as, I think all different people come to acting for many, many different reasons. So I, I don't have a, a specific category of archetypes that would come.
0: Yeah, so what what is that course? Is it trauma? For performing artists, is it kind of bodily trauma that they have from using their bodies as performers?
1: It varies. It can, usually it's about, and this is what, you know, what I teach on my own, and this is both actors and musicians, is that somebody gets up to do a performance, either act or sing or play an instrument, and how fully are they doing it? And what's interfering with that? I mean, that's what kind of what I'm good at. <laughs> yeah. People recognize, ah, what's happening here? What are you actually doing? What are you not doing? What would you like to do? You mm-hmm. know, all of those questions. So I think that's the bottom line here.
0: Well, reading your book made me really think that I want to like take singing lessons. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but yeah, just like opening up and expressing in that way again.
1: Yeah, good. I encourage you to do that.
0: I think I will. I think that's, that's calling me to just open up that vocal resonance and breathe and and just sing and see what I can do. Not holding back and not trying to do it for school or for the stage. <laughs> but
1: right. good note yeah. to end on. You, you...
0: <laughs> Is there anything else that uh, that we should end on that I didn't ask you that you want to share?
1: No, I just think that Everybody should read Humanual and uh, the world may be a little different. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. You've captured so much in there and we'll link it in the show notes. And if folks want to find you and and work with you, how should they do that? Through your website? Yes.
1: Yeah, I I believe there's a a contact link there too. It's, you know, the website is humanual.com and then I believe it's info at humanual.com will get to me. I just encourage people to make life as full as you as you can. It doesn't last forever. So Yeah,
0: Betsy, that's, yeah, that's a beautiful message. And you you certainly have bodily, emotional, spiritual all of the levels. So thank you for making my life fuller. And I encourage people to explore your work. It's very, very profound.
1: Well, thank you, and it's been a pleasure to be talking with you this past hour and lots of interesting ins and outs. So I hope people can take something from it.
0: I know they will. Thank you, Betsy.
1: Thank you. As we buzz around the
0: busy world,
1: it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally
0: immortalized
1: in someone else's land.